Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this 10th year anniversary uh, for proclamation. We know that's all of your grace. We bless you for it. We praise you for it. And how exciting that that 10th year anniversary, by your grace, and if you're willing, will include their first daughter church. We just, we just revel in your kindness to us and what you're doing here in New England. We just give it all to you and we give this time to you. We ask that you would bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about our freedom to worship, not as a political right per the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, but as a spiritual reality. And I don't want to talk about worship merely as a theological concept. This morning, we want to grow in our ability to worship both publicly and privately. So we want to address some of the reasons that perhaps we struggle practically to worship our great God all the time, not just Sunday morning. I'm hoping that when we're finished today that you and I might leave this service a clearer and more robust worshiper than when we came in. And perhaps particularly in two areas, in the area of praise, in the area of prayer. Now to be sure, most of us would readily associate praise with worship. We sing songs of praise like we just did. We readily offer words of praise and thanksgiving in a public arena, especially through singing. Although we may feel that privately our hearts of praise and thanksgiving are not what they should be. But if you're like me, you may not easily associate prayer with worship. And the area of private prayer may not be going well for you. Admittedly, I struggle much more in private prayer, with private prayer, than I do with group prayer. And again, I'm hoping that God will help us this morning to better give him the worship that he is due and frankly, the worship that he demands. But we will have to do some theological slogging to get there. It may get a little tedious. I want to move quickly. But I want, you to invite, I want to invite you to hang in there. Now, while I was a senior pastor for 30 years, I could regularly preach for over an hour. But have no fear, we'll go quicker today. Your two-service format helps guys like me. <laughs> so let's begin by understanding what happened when Adam sinned. Just listen. We'll look at several passages, but just listen as I read from Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you hear twice liberty was mentioned in that quote from Isaiah chapter 61? Jesus came, he said, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim freedom to the captives to give recovery of sight to the blind. Now, why did he do that? Well, because in Adam, you and I were not free. We didn't have the liberty to worship our great God. Now, 3 John, you don't need to turn there, describes 
the cause of our sinful lives like this. Whoever does or practices evil, 3 John 11 says, whoever practices evil has not seen God. We couldn't worship God because we couldn't see God. We were blind. Ezra ascribes to us hearts of stone, doesn't he, in Ezra 36. Hearts that were unable to respond to God's promptings, to God's will. We were dead, Paul says, in explaining that metaphor in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Yes, you see, when God cast Adam out of the garden, he and his progeny, which includes you and me, we were cast out of God's presence. Our vile rebellion in Adam resulted in our being banished from the sanctuary of his presence. We lost our freedom to worship. So how did a banished sinner awaken to the glory of God and to his presence? What made us wake up? Jesus said it this way in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The Father drew us. The old hymn, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth. And followed thee. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. To believe in Jesus is to behold him, to gaze at him with eyes of faith. We were awakened to the beauty of his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, you could say when we were saved that we beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for the very first time. That's what happened. That's what was going on there. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 3 with me. Go ahead and turn. Did I hear that you're, no, 2 Samuel, not 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3, a little longer passage. I'll pick it up in verse 15. It says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Skip down to verse 3 of chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. You see, what happened to us when that diffusing ray came? We beheld our God in the face of Jesus Christ for the very first time. And that started the worship process of our lives and the transformation of our lives. You become what you behold. That's good news to me. You don't become what you eat. I'm not a McDonald's quarter pounder, but I am becoming what I behold. I'm becoming what I worship. And that process began when I beheld Christ at the time of my salvation. But what are the nuts and bolts of that worship? That's where we want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. The nuts and bolts, I think, are given in the book of Romans and culminate in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Would you turn there with me? We'll be spending most of the rest of our time in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Most of you know that uh, there's widespread agreement that by the time we get to 12.1, Paul has laid the foundation and he now wants to apply that foundation that he laid in Romans 1 through 11. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's start with the foundation of true worship, the basis. And what is it? It's mercy. It's mercy. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, right from the verse, but that is picking up on what Paul said a few verses earlier. Go back to verse 30 of chapter 11. He says, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, the Gentiles, you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience. So they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy mercy. I think that's talking about a, a future salvation, God saving uh, uh, a number of Jews that no man can count. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Verse 1 then, after that glorious doxology, how do you skip that? But I am. Now verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. You see the, you see the logic? This unbelievable mercy to Jew and Gentile, he's now on the basis of that appealing to them to do something. You see, God has shut up both Jew and Gentile under disobedience that he might show mercy to all, to both Jew and and Gentile. And the appeal of verse 1 itself proves that this mercy is not just a cause for aspirational commitment, but it's actually a life transforming power. Remember, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's how Paul opened up this book. So, what is the appeal? This appeal that proves that God's mercy is a life transforming power. 
What's the urging? I appeal to you the command that flows from God's saving mercy. You can summarize it with one word, presentation. Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies. I urge you to offer your life, your whole life to God. But how do you do that? How do you present? Well, he gave three modifiers to the big idea. What's the big idea? Well, sometimes word order in the original is helpful because our translation says as a living sacrifice, like living is somehow being highlighted. I don't think it is. In the original, it says this, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, acceptable. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. That's the upshot of Paul's appeal. Living, holy, I'm gonna use the phrase well-pleasing in place of what your Bible say acceptable. They're both good translations, but I think there's some Old Testament imagery that well-pleasing helps conjure up that I think Paul's getting after. So thus, the object of the presentation is sacrifice. By God's saving mercies, we're to present, we're to offer our lives as sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Well, what does that mean? To offer our lives as a sacrifice that is living. Go back to Romans and flip back a few chapters to chapter 6. This presentation idea is, is not new in Romans 12.1. Paul introduced it in Romans chapter 6. I could read several verses. I want to just read verses 11 to 14. Paul says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Remember, we've died with Christ. We've been joined to him in his death. And Paul says that that's an objective fact. So based on that, Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, there's our present idea, do not present your members as sins to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, alive from the dead, and your members to, in, to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. You and I can present our lives to God as a living sacrifice because now, as a result of beholding Christ with eyes of faith, we're dead to sin, but alive to God. Sin's reigning power in our lives has been broken. When you and I were still in Adam, when we were still in our sin, when sin said to us, jump, the only response we could give was, how high? Not anymore. When sin says, jump, we can say, no. Because of what Christ has done. And hence, it's a living sacrifice, like Christ, our great high priest, who's the paradigm for living sacrifices. But it's also a holy sacrifice. And by that, 
I think Paul's getting at the idea of consecration. Remember the priests of old? That's why I referenced Exodus 29 in your bulletin. The priests of old were anointed. They were consecrated. They were dedicated to God. And Paul is saying, so too must we. Like Jesus Christ, who was fully consecrated to God, we're part of a royal priesthood. He's our great high priest, but we're a part of a royal priesthood set apart solely for God's service. That's what he's saying. I want you to be holy, holy devoted to God's service. So a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, and lastly, an acceptable or well-pleasing sacrifice. Are you hearing temple echoes in all of this? It's designed to make you think of all things temple in the Old Testament. We're offering ourselves to God as a sacrifice, living, consecrated, well-pleasing, fragrant. That's what I think about when I think about sacrifices in the Old Testament, that they were fragrant aromas. You know, as you get older, you get a little, a little portly. You work at it, but it's kind of a losing battle, I think. Uh, maybe I'm just making excuses. But I love reading that God loves the fat. That's what it says in the Old Testament. God loves the fat. When the fat was burned, when it was offered, it gave a sweet-smelling aroma. They weren't, they weren't offering celery. They were offering fat. That smells good. And I like celery. Don't, don't take that any other way other than me being ornery. That's all that's going on here. And so... That's the imagery that, that Paul is trying to conjure in your mind. The idea of a sacrifice going up that's completely dedicated to God. And it's able to do so because it's living. It's not dead in sin. And it's offering a fragrant aroma to our Heavenly Father. Now, the sacrifice we offer to God is to be perpetually Fragrant, and it starts with love for the brethren. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? You know, this is one of those things that if you hadn't been thinking about fragrant or aroma, now when you're reading your Bibles, you're going to start seeing it everywhere. You're just going to start seeing it everywhere. And one of the prominent places, which you may not have remembered, is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let me stop right there. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see how Paul framed love in that verse? As Christ's love and sacrifice was a fragrant aroma to God, so too is our love and sacrifice for each other. I find that to be an encouraging thought. You and I in Christ, free to be a fragrant aroma of love, and that being at the heart of worship. You know, we, we had the privilege, my wife Sue and I had the privilege of taking care of her mother for eight years. She died in our home. We uh, took her in. She was already 
severe Alzheimer's by the time we took her in. She didn't know Sue, she didn't know me, although the one thing she remembered is I was a preacher. That seemed to both irritate her and cause her to remember. Uh, We believe she was a believer. We were encouraged with that. Uh, But, you know, taking care of somebody in the last three years, she was completely bedridden. That's That's a tough assignment. There's a lot of things that you have to do for an adult that's in that state that are distasteful. Um, But I can remember one day while I was feeding her, she was on a totally liquid diet for probably the last five years, and uh, I just thought, this is my sister in Christ. And these things, which I'm a little on the queasy side, these things, which are a a bit distasteful, are actually fragrant aromas welling up to God as I'm loving my sister in her final years. That's a, that's a fun way and an encouraging way to think about serving one another and doing the things that are maybe a little distasteful. And there's a lot of them out there, aren't there? When we're trying to really serve one another, God is pleased with the aroma of that. But so too are our prayers for one another. Do you remember the altar of incense in the temple? Do you remember that altar? It was right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Uh, That veil is the veil that was rent from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. Maybe you remember that story. And so according to Exodus chapter 30, again, I put those verses in there for you. Incense was offered up twice a day in the morning and at twilight. It was an incense offering. And when we get to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, it says that that incense represents and is fulfilled in the prayers of the saints. In fact, it says it a couple times, Revelation 5, Revelation 8. That incense pictures the prayers of the saints. In other words, our prayers, this is the one that's hitting me and helping me the most. Our prayers are a well-pleasing Sacrifice, a fragrant aroma to God. I'm wondering if you've ever thought about prayer like that. I, I feel a little embarrassed. I, don't, I haven't tended to connect those dots. I knew those verses, but I didn't connect those dots. And you and I, if you know Christ, have been set free to pray without ceasing. Meaning we're continually like that temple portrait with the incense offering. We're just offering up our prayers and God is pleased to hear those. Even our prayers of confession. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And likewise, our praise. You probably know Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The psalmist enjoys us, enjoins us to do that very thing. In fact, turn again. Well, you heard it read this morning, but turn with me to Psalm 150. This is the culminating psalm. I think it's the upshot of the psalms and one of many hallelujah psalms. I don't know about you, but It takes me some work to get in this mood. 
I can read it, but my heart's not really resonating with it. And we're free by God's grace to resonate with this psalm. Let me read it. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We are free. We're free to praise the Lord. And indeed, the picture from Revelation 7, we won't turn there, is that of a countless multitude from every tribe and people and language praising God around his throne day and night for his saving mercies on our faces. And Paul summarizes this, this living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice to God with the words spiritual worship. I'll read 12.1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship, another translation says, reasonable worship, true and proper worship. The NIV says, I like true worship, per Doug Moo's commentary on Romans, because John 4 says that the Father is looking for those who do what? Who worship in spirit and in truth. So offering our lives as a living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice, that's true worship. Yes. Okay, we know we have the power to offer ourselves sacrifice to God. We know that this constitutes true worship. But do we know the rudiments of making that presentation? In other words, what do we have to do to be continually presenting ourselves, offering ourselves to God as a sacrifice, living, dedicated, well-pleasing? Well, I think two ways. And that's what constitutes verse 2. First, by not conforming to the world. Did you hear that in verse 2? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So first, by not conforming to the world. Of course, the poster child verse on worldliness is 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. The one who does the will of God abides forever. We must stop if we're to be continually offering ourselves up as a sacrifice. We must stop pursuing the lust of the flesh. And the good news is we have the power to do that. Not perfectly, but characteristically. That's probably referring particularly to sexual impurity. My goodness, great opportunities 
to not pursue worldly lusts by mortifying those sins. And then the lust of the eyes. We must stop pursuing the lust of the eyes. Probably coveting materialism. I'm not against internet shopping, but it does facilitate a lust of the eyes if we're not careful. And the pride of life. You know, it's kind of like, what's my, what's my favorite topic? Oh, it's me. Uh, I'm working hard to not be so self-absorbed and especially boasting of my own achievements. Boy, we're good at that, and we're good at doing it in a socially acceptable Christian kind of way, aren't we? But again, here's the good news. You and I are free not to conform to the world, to resist the devil's lives. You don't have to believe his lies as to what is beautiful and therefore pursue that counterfeit beauty which consists of worldly desires. And instead, we're free to be transformed by renewing our minds with godly desires. Now, how do we do that? I think really it's by living out our new status, our new identity in Christ as spirit people. You and I are spirit people if we know Jesus Christ. We're not flesh people anymore. We're spirit people. According to Romans 8, we're now people in the spirit. We're now people according to the spirit. We're people who walk by the spirit and we're people who mind the things of the spirit. There's a beholding idea. We mind, we think about, we fix our gaze on the things of the spirit. And I think that's nicely summarized by the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christ, by the way? That's the image that we're beholding and being conformed to. And as we behold Christ, as we fix our minds on Christ, we see the Spirit's fruit. We see Christ's likeness coming into our lives. Again, you become what you behold, what you fix your mind on. That's how we renew our minds. We fix our minds, our gaze on Christ, on the fruit of Christ. And as verse 2 concludes, such transformation glorifies God. It showcases his perfection, is seen in his good and well-pleasing and perfect will. We're able to test what God has been saying all along, that his will, his kingdom, ethos of love, joy, peace, patience, etc., that that ethos is the epitome of all that is beautiful. We prove that with our lives. So what do we do with all that? Hopefully, we become better worshipers. And let me suggest two takeaways to accomplish that in closing. First, we need to simply grab a hold of the fact that in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, you are free to worship. That wasn't the case before his eye diffused that quickening ray. You were enslaved to your sins. But now you are free to do what you were created to do, to worship our great God. 
You're free to offer yourself to God as a living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifice. The Son has set you free, and now there's nothing preventing you from offering yourself to God each day and each hour, just like those temple sacrifices, and do so as a sacrifice, empowered, consecrated, and fragrant to God. Now, for those here today that are outside of Christ, I don't want to beat you over the head with this, but you need to understand that Scripture is clear that right now you are headed for God's judgment. He is due your worship and your enslavement, which results in you worshiping everything else under the sun, including yourself, that rightly induces his wrath. He's justly angry with you. So do you, I say, let the Son set you free. And then you'll be free indeed. Not the world's notion of freedom, which is perverted. You'll be free indeed. If you'll let the sun set you free, ask God, get on your knees this afternoon in your bedroom and ask God to open your blinded eyes so that you might behold the beauty of his son's death, burial, and resurrection. Ask him to do that. I have trouble believing he won't answer that prayer if that's really what you want. So the first is to grab a hold of the fact that we're free to worship. And second, to make real progress, particularly in our private life of praise and prayer. Both are keen aspects of a well-pleasing sacrifice. Now the last thing I want to do is guilt you over perhaps a lackluster prayer life. Because I don't want to be guilted over that. Or for tepid praise and thanksgiving. The last thing I want to do is guilt you over that. I don't think that really motivates you to change anyways. But I think this can. First to revel in your freedom to praise and pray, regardless of the circumstances. See, you're not bound by your circumstances and you're not a victim of your past. You are free, even on your worst day, to praise God, who's written your names in heaven. On your worst day, when you feel like God has abandoned you, you're free to praise him and you're free to pray to him. We need to get our heads around that. So not only is your love for one another a fragrant aroma, but your praise and prayers are too. When you praise God, every time you thank God, every single time you thank God, it pleases him, it makes him happy. It's a fragrant aroma. Every time you sing, even if you can't hold a tune in a bucket, it pleases God. It pleases God. During the worship service, you sing out. 
He's pleased. You say, well, my neighbor's a little irritated. They'll get over it. And the same is true with your prayers. Think about this. Every time you confess your sins, every time you ask God for help, every time you pray for one another, every time you pray for your elders, every time you pray for nets, thank you. You're sending up a well-pleasing, fragrant aroma to your God. He delights. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. He delights in your prayers. Isn't that wild? So instead of feeling guilty that you don't pray enough, you don't thank God enough, I'm saying to you, let's shift into the gear where we're working hard to exercise our freedom to worship our maker and our redeemer, knowing that he's pleased to hear from each one of us as members of his kingdom of priests, offering up sacrifices of prayer and praise. And here's a closing thought. Even our confession of a lackluster prayer life or of tepid praise, even that is pleasing to him. How can you go wrong? So let's purpose, brothers and sisters, to follow our Savior, who always did that which was pleasing in his sight. And let's exploit this marvelous freedom that he's given us to worship our great God and Savior. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the freedom that we have to worship. We worship you this morning. May we worship you with all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.